end. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Today we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount by looking at the model by which our Lord gives us uh, to pray. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at just one verse today, but I'm going to read in context. I'm going to read Matthew 6, starting at verse 8 through 13. I hear the word of the Lord. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. O great God in heaven, we need so desperately your grace, God, to understand what your words say to us today. Father, we pray by your grace that you would be with us, your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us, so that we would know, Father, how to pray to the God of this universe. We thank you. We give you all honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The great expositional preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said about prayer, quote, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. Therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of man's true spiritual condition. There's nothing that tests the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Well, a couple weeks ago, we began looking at prayer in general and how vital it is to the believer. And it is, friends, not only is prayer vital to the believer, how we pray is essential to our walk with God. Jesus, here in our text, gives his disciples and all Christians by extension the proper model or manner in which we are uh, to pray. We're going to look at each element and each facet of the Lord's Prayer uh, over the next few weeks. But before we do that, I, I want to provide an overview of the prayer itself. By looking and studying the structure and the purpose for the Lord's Prayer, we can draw principles that will help us understand the importance that God puts upon the manner in which we are to pray. But first, as a a reminder of the context, uh, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is addressing in all of the chapter, all of chapter 6, the overarching theme of living before the face of God, living in the very real presence of God. The first half of the chapter addresses spiritual pride, Doing things for God's glory not to be seen by others. Practicing our righteousness uh, not to be seen by men and women, not to be seen by others, but for the glory of God. Then in the second half of the chapter, he addresses living before the face of God in our day-to-day, our daily uh, uh, providence 
uh, before trusting in the providence of God uh, in the physical aspects of our day to day. And then narrowing to verses 5 through 7 of chapter 6, Jesus addresses praying the right way, not praying to be seen by men, and not using vain repetitions. We addressed this a couple of weeks ago. If you look at verse 8, he says, So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Then he says in verse 9, and that's what we're going to narrow in today, he says, Pray then in this way, or in this manner. And don't miss the then. Uh, Your Bibles might say, therefore. It's very important that we look at why the therefore is there. In this way, he says, then pray in this manner. It means because of the things he just said before. Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer on the back of verses 5 through 8. So we would do well to understand why he has the then, the therefore. It connects. Uh, Because, he says, don't pray this way. Because your motives and the manner for praying need to be right. They need to align to my will. Uh, Since you don't need to pray like the Gentiles who think they uh, will be heard by their vain repetitions, by their babbling, by them going on and on. And the most immediate context Jesus has here for verse 9 is verse 8. I want to remind you again what he says in verse 8. In the latter half, he says, For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And it's all on the back of that. He says, pray then, or therefore, pray in this way. Because your Father in heaven knows what you need better than you think you know what you need. Because he knows your needs before you even ask, Jesus says, here's how I want you to pray. And he gives us the model and the manner for which we are to pray. But friends, when we understand the depth of this statement that God your Father knows what you have need of before you even ask, when we understand the depth of this statement, our prayer lives will absolutely change. I fear many Christians don't think that God really knows what they need because they for certain spend most of their prayer lives telling God what it is that they need need. Ephesians 3, 20-21 say, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We must understand, brothers and sisters, the connection that Jesus makes between our prayer life and the truth that God knows what we need before we ask. So Jesus says here, pray in this way, because your Father knows what you need. Here's how I want you to pray. He says in verse 9, your, verse might, your translation might say, uh, after this manner, pray, uh, or in this way, pray. Now, there's uh, long debates over uh, the centuries on whether or not the Lord's Prayer was intended to be repeated word for word. Now, while I believe there's nothing wrong with repeating the Lord's Prayer, I've done it and will do it, 
And the parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says very specifically, when the disciples asked him, teach us how to pray, Jesus says, when you pray, say this. And he uses the word for speak, to say. Here's what I want you to say. Uh, But here in chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus doesn't say, say this. He says, pray in this way. Pray in this manner. Jesus isn't giving the uh, command to speak the Lord's Prayer word for word. Again, although there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus has given us a guide by which our prayers should align. So this prayer is a model prayer or a pattern that we ought to follow. And it's a pattern that we ought to follow both in the elements of the prayer, but also in the sequence. And I'll show you what I mean here in a minute. Think of the Lord's Prayer like a skeleton or a foundation. When you give careful attention to the study of the Lord's Prayer, uh, you will find that it hits all of the principles in which we need to pray. So think about, again, a skeleton. This is like a skeleton, and when we pray, we sort of fill out and flesh out the skeleton that Jesus gives us with the model prayer. Or a foundation. Jesus gives the foundation which hits all the principles that we need to pray for. And we flesh that out. We build upon that foundation. Uh, This is why great catechisms throughout the millennia go through the Lord's Prayer, uh, expounding upon each petition of it. And we'll do that with our catechism. We'll go through each petition And here from the pulpit, I'll go through each petition and expound upon what the meaning behind it is. And you'll find and you'll find that each element of the Lord's Prayer hits on all of the principles. If you take all of Scripture and all of the the commands and all of the guidance on uh, what to pray and, and how to pray, you'll find that all of those fit into one of the elements of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, It's astounding. And we're going to look at each of those. And like the Sermon on the Mount itself, there's purpose in the way which Jesus crafted the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus had a purpose in mind. It's not random. The the Lord's Prayer is not a random thought that Jesus had. Uh, There's a a purpose. There's a sequence to it. There's a structure. And there's a flow to it. And that's what we're going to spend a few minutes today before uh, we go in. Uh, to the petitions. We're going to spend some, a few minutes looking at the structure of it, drawing the principles out of that structure. And then we're going to look at the invocation to the Lord's Prayer uh, today briefly, or the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so we must understand that Jesus cares, first of all, how we worship. Uh, I mentioned this last time, but we need to understand that prayer is a form of worship to God. And Jesus cares very much how we worship. And we cannot choose how we worship God. And friends, we cannot choose how we are to pray to God. Jesus in this command says, pray in this way. This is a command. It's in the imperative mood. Okay? It's not a suggestion. Uh, it's not an option. Uh, not only are you commanded to pray, not only does Jesus, in verse 5, he presupposes that his disciples will be disciples who pray. He says, when you pray. He's assuming that we pray. Uh, But not only is it a command to pray, we have the command here from Jesus to pray in this way. Jesus gives us the model and the pattern which we ought to shape our prayer life around. Now, 
There are, of course, grace for babes in Christ who don't know how to pray. Uh, God does not require this type of formal structure and pattern to the penitent sinner that's praying for mercy. Uh, Take, for instance, the tax collector in Luke 18. Uh, He could only utter the words, God be merciful to me as he was beating his chest. God be merciful to me, the sinner. He didn't go through this formal pattern that Jesus gives here in in, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, But even his prayer aligns to part of the Lord's Prayer. So there's much grace uh, for those who are babes in Christ. But as we grow in Christ, I think if you truly desire to honor God, you truly desire to seek God's glory, uh, we will want to seek to understand the way that God instructs us to pray and the way God instructs us to worship. I hope that your desire is to form every part of your life, every part of your worship, to the Word of God. And so it's incumbent upon us uh, to look at the Lord's Prayer with, uh, with uh, a seriousness, right? To, to look at the Lord's Prayer and to f- focus and to uh, diligently give diligent study to the Lord's Prayer and shape our prayer life around that. Now, also, there's also times where you may not have sort of the time to go through the Lord's Prayer. You might be in a, a temptation and, and you just ha- all you can utter is, Lord, help me, Right? God's not going to not accept that prayer because you didn't go through, you know, the whole Lord's Prayer, right? But when we set time aside in our daily life, and we should, uh, to give attention to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us the way and the manner in which we, are, uh, which we ought to pray. James says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Uh, Do you want your prayers to be effectual? I do. Well, live holy, as James says. Be fervent with your prayer and pray according to the pattern by which Jesus gives here in our text. So let's look at the outline. I made an outline of the Lord's Prayer, which, by the way, is really the disciples' prayer. Uh, This isn't the Lord's Prayer. The Lord would never pray this type of prayer because in it, he says, forgive us of our what? Our sins or our debts. Okay, so Jesus has no reason to pray. He gives this to the disciples and by extension, all Christians of all time. This really is the disciples' prayer. This is our prayer that we all ought to model uh, our prayer life around. In the Lord's Prayer, there's an introduction followed by six petitions, six requests, uh, then a conclusion. Now, I want to start by drawing out some principles from the structure of the Lord's Prayer itself. And the first one is this. When we're praying, we must not be hasty in our prayers. We must not be hasty in our prayers. When coming before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we need not to be hasty When addressing God, we must show honor and respect. What do I mean by being hasty? Well, if you were to go into a meeting with a a godly leader, like a godly governor, or uh, if we were to have a godly president, and we were going to go meet with them, and we were going to go into their room, you wouldn't swing the door open and say, hey, let me tell you all the things I need, right? I mean, you're not showing honor and respect. That's what I mean by when you come to God, the King of Kings, 
the Lord of Lords. Yes, we can boldly come before the throne through Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, Boldly means we have access to God, right? But we shouldn't come hasty to God. We shouldn't come rushing to God. Uh, We should take time to honor the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We need to understand who it is that we are addressing. And we see this throughout Scripture. If you look at all the great prayers of the Old Testament, you see that these uh, prophets and these men and women of God did not hastily air out their complaints before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Take, for instance, Daniel. Uh, In his prayer of repentance in chapter 9, he doesn't come hastily even to repent. He says, I pray to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments. So he did not hastily just barge into the room and start repenting. Okay, he first acknowledged and showed honor and respect to this great and awesome God. And like Daniel, Nehemiah addresses God similarly in his prayer uh, recorded in Nehemiah chapter 1. If you recall, in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah finds out that Jerusalem has been devastated. Uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed and the gates were burned down. And off of that, he doesn't just come and start complaining to God on, oh God, what about your great promises? Oh God, why did you let this happen? No, listen to what he says and starting in verse 4. When I heard these words about the destruction of Jerusalem and all of the, the walls being, uh, the gates being burnt down, he says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So Daniel and Nehemiah did not hastily rush into doing business with God, and I'm afraid that's how many Christians today rush into their prayers, and as soon as they bow their heads, they just start complaining or start asking for things for them. God is not our genie in a bottle. Okay, we don't go to him and just say, God, I need this. God, I need this. God, what, why'd you let this happen? God, why'd you let that happen? We don't see that in these great prayers in the Bible. We see these great men and women taking time to honor God, the great God in heaven. Okay? God doesn't need us to praise him. Okay? It's not like we're you know, stroking his ego. We don't, he doesn't need the praise, but when we go before him, there ought to be a a certain level of of respect and honor. Uh, God is is our Savior. Uh, Jesus is as a brother, right? We do have access to God, uh, but it should should not be in such a a casualness to where we're not showing honor and respect to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Uh, Jeremiah, we see the same thing. Jeremiah was confused as to why the wicked were flourishing, and he takes it to God right? I've done that. Have you ever taken to God, God, why does it seem like all the evil people in our world are flourishing, right? Uh, Where is your justice, O God? Uh, But he doesn't start with that. He takes time to acknowledge God. He doesn't hastily rush in 
to questioning God's sovereignty. He goes and he says, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. I mean, can you imagine walking into a room with a great king of the earth? Say it's a godly king, right? And you have a message to give to him or you want to ask him a question. You want to, you have petitions to him. Would you not, would you not pay honor and respect in addressing that great king? And that's how we ought to do. And we see that in the Lord's Prayer as it starts out with our Father, which art in heaven. Even Jesus, in all his prayers, he begins by addressing his Father, showing submission, showing honor, and showing respect. And we live in a day, friends, that we are so busy. We've got so many things to do. I understand it's tempting to rush into prayer. I, you know, I got five minutes uh, before I got to start my day, before I got to go to work, and I only got five minutes till the kids wake up, and then you know you're not going to have any quiet time, so I'm just going to rush and spill my needs and problems upon God uh, like he's uh, my psychologist, and that's not how we ought to treat prayer. Now, again, I know there's always exceptions. You're driving, and you're about to be tempted, or you're, you're in danger. There's some impending danger. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Lord, please help me. Right? That sometimes that's all you can get out. Okay, but I'm talking about the times where we are commanded, you know, to set aside, to go to our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, our Savior, our Redeemer, and pray to Him. We ought not to do it in a hastily type of fashion. He is a great and awesome God in heaven, and He deserves for us to come to Him, to bow down in respect and adoration. Next, the next principle we can uh, glean from just the structure itself is that in our prayer life, God's glory is to be sought first before we ever think about bringing our needs. God's glory is to be sought first before we bring our needs. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, there's six petitions. After the introduction, our Father uh, who is in heaven There's six petitions, six things that the Lord in his uh, pattern prayer gives us to ask God. We're to take these things, ask, seek, knock. But notice what the first three ones have to do with. They have nothing to do with you. They have nothing to do with me. They have all to do with the glory of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Hallowed be thy name. The last three petitions have to do with us and our needs. So we can glean that God's glory is to be sought first in our prayer life. It should be the utmost focus of our prayers. God is not for us just to come and air our complaints. Now, Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Yes, yes, and amen. But God is not one for every time you go to him in prayer, you're just complaining. That's not how we are to address our God. He wants to hear the things that are burdening us down. He wants to hear the things that are are weighing us and our anxieties and our cares because we are commanded to cast them upon him. But notice that not only does the Lord's prayer start in the first three petitions, petitions with God's glory. It also ends with the glory of God. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
You often see this with the Psalms. Psalms are great uh, uh, templates, too, to pray. You often see this with the psalmist, with King David. You see he's in danger. You see he's, uh, he has some sort of issue going on. And he always starts with some sort of introduction, acknowledging God, submitting to God. Uh, and then crying out to God. But then you'll, most, I think all psalms but one, end with a praise to Yahweh. With a, a, acknowledging his glory, his power, and his kingdom. And that's how our prayer life ought to be. It ought to begin and end for the glory of God. Amen? Okay, now let's look at the introduction or the invocation to the Lord's Prayer. Verse 9, he says, Pray then in this way, or therefore pray in this manner, Our Father who is in heaven. This is the introduction. This is the invocation. We see this all throughout Jesus' ministry that he prayed and he directed his prayers to God the Father. And now he's instructing his disciples to do the same. When you go to the Lord in prayer, pray in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. You're acknowledging God as your Father. Now, it's important to understand just how radical this actually was in the context in in his audience. This was a novel idea. It was radical to call God your Father. You know, we use that term so often. You hear it so often in all of Christianity. Oh, Father. Oh, Father, please do this. Father, hear us. We see that, but in that day and age, friends, that was not the norm. It was not the case. To call God your Father was not even accepted uh, by the Jews. There was actually a German theologian His name was Joachim Jeremias. He was a German theologian. He did a study of both the Old Testament and extant Jewish writings. So Jewish writings as far back as as we could go that were extant, that were still survived. He could not find a single instance of a Jewish writer referring to God as his father until the 10th century A.D., Remarkable. Now, the Jews reference God as their father as a nation. We'll see that in John, but never as an individual did any Jewish writer until the 10th century refer to God as their father. The idea Jesus gives his audience to address God as our father was totally new and radical, and it would have been a shock to them. In fact, one of the indictments on Jesus, if you recall, in John 5, from the Jews was this very thing, that he called God his father. And to them, that meant that Jesus was making himself equal with God. Now, there's a very different relationship, a different sonship between Jesus and the father and our sonship. Jesus's sonship is one of preeminence. It's one of divine right, uh, while in fact being equal with God while our sonship is one of adoption, and we'll see that hear that in a minute as well. Jesus addressed God as Father in all of his recorded prayers, except for one. Can you guess which one? When he was on the cross, and his prayer to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you look at all the other prayers, he references God as his Father. And he gives us the model to do the same. 
This would have gone against the tradition of the Jews. So this is in the context, it's important to understand that this was not something that they would have taken a liking to. So what does it mean to address God as Father? We say it so casually, often we forget the great gravity and the great privilege it is to call God, the God of this universe, our Father, my Father, your Father. Our catechism says, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? It says, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which are in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a Father, able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. When we call God our Father, there's great implications for that. First of all, when Jesus commands to introduce your prayers with God our Father, I want to show you that it's only believers that have a right to address God as their, as their Father. And therefore, this prayer is only a prayer for the Christian. Only believers have the right to call God their Father. Jesus' ministry was very distinctive. He divided believers versus unbelievers all throughout his ministry. Uh, we saw this in the Beatitudes. He, he shared these are the people who are in the kingdom. All of Jesus' parables, almost all of them, have to do with who's in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. Jesus' ministry was very distinctive on who were believers and who were unbelievers. And only believers can call God their father. Now, this is countercultural to say that God is not the father of unbelievers. Most contemporary Christians and many denominations would say that God is the father of all people in the world, and we were, we were all children of God. Have you ever heard of that? The other way to call this throughout the ages is the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men. Well, friends, that could not be further from the truth. The Bible simply does not teach that God is the father of all mankind uh, and that we are all uh, brothers and sisters. God, the Bible does not teach that. The unbeliever can call God his creator because God did create all. And the unbeliever most certainly can call God his judge, and he is, but only believers have the great privilege to call God their father. Turn to John chapter 8 with me. John chapter 8. Starting at verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are not doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand that I, what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Well, there you have it. Jesus makes the distinction that they were not of God. Their father was the devil. Unbelievers are not children of God, friends. The Bible calls them children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. You are either a child of God, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ, or a child of the devil. And there's no in-between. 1 John 3.10, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. We are not born into this world as sons and daughters of God, friends, but we are born or when we are born again, we are received into the family of God by means of adoption. So our natural, our natural inclination, our natural birthright, if you will, is to be sons and daughters of wrath, to be children of the devil. But God in his mercy and his grace, if he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, you are an adopted son or daughter, and now you have the great privilege and the great right to call God your father. And what does it mean to have God as your father? You see, many of us have messed up ideas of what a father is because we may have had really bad fathers or fathers like that just weren't perfect because fathers aren't perfect. Uh, But many of us have really skewed ideas on what a father is. And we must do our best to set aside our understanding and own experiences with our own father to look at what the Bible says about what it means to have God as your father. And notice the text, it says, it does just say our father, it says our father in heaven. It's a reminder that our father in heaven is not like our earthly father. Our father in heaven is perfect. Our father in heaven is merciful, is kind. He, everything he does is perfect. And that's a reminder that that is our father if we're in Christ. So we must remind ourselves that our father is not like our earthly father in his fallen state, but he is great. He is glorious and he is a majestic father. He is good. He is merciful. He is great. Uh, He is our awesome God, as Daniel and Jeremiah say. And if you're in Christ, we're sons and daughters, not by natural birth, but by this great doctrine called adoption. See, when we understand the doctrine of adoption, when we say our Father in heaven, right there, you could be done praying if you truly understand the doctrine of adoption. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right and a privilege to be a son and daughter of God of God. John 1:12 says, "As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our confession of faith in chapter 12 says adoption this way, all those who are justified, God conferred in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God, have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What a great and glorious doctrine if we truly understood this doctrine of adoption. When we go to the Lord in prayer, it would change our prayer life when we cry out, Our Father in heaven. 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world did not know us. Uh, The world does not know us because it did not know Him. Brothers and sisters, knowing what it means to be a son or daughter of God, to address God in our prayers as Father, when we do that, we acknowledge uh, His love. When we do that, we acknowledge His authority. Uh, When we say our Father in heaven, we acknowledge his grace by which he adopted us into his family. We acknowledge the means by which we've been adopted through the person and the work of Christ on our behalf. When we acknowledge him as God, our Father in heaven, we acknowledge him as protector. We acknowledge him as our provider. We acknowledge him as the only one that loves us enough to discipline us for our own good. We acknowledge that he knows all of our needs before we even ask. That's what it means to acknowledge God as Father. Furthermore, when we acknowledge God as Father and truly grasp the depths of his fatherhood, it brings us peace. When we understand we are children of the God Most High, If God be for us, who can be against us? When we acknowledge God and understand his fatherhood, it brings us peace and it casts out fear. When we acknowledge God and understand his fatherhood, it builds our hope and confidence. When we understand this great God of the universe is our provider, is our protector, who has ordered all of our steps, when we understand this great doctrine, it emboldens our faith and gives us confidence, not in ourself, but it gives us confidence in God. So I want to end by asking you, brothers and sisters, friends, is God your Father? Is God your God? Can you truly say, as it says in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, my Father? Can you truly say that you've been adopted as one of God's sons, as one of God's daughters? 
Can you call God your Father, not because you learn that's how, that's how to pray, but can you call God your Father because you understand that He rescued you from your sin, that He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness where your Father was your sin and the devil, and He rescued you from that domain and transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Can you say that? Can you call God your Father? Because you realize the work that he's done in you. Well, how can you know that God is your father? And here's how I'll end. If you want to know how God is your father, here are four ways, according to Thomas Watson, that you can know that God is your father. And these four things are seen in having a loving disposition. That you would, one, melt in tears for a sin as a child weeps for offending his father. When you see a loving father and a loving son and you see that son disappoint by going against his daddy's will and you see him broken because he is displeased, he has offended his father, is that you when you realize you've sinned? Do you melt in tears because you realize you've offended your father? That's one way to know that God is your father. Another way to know is to be full of sympathy, uh, meaning that it grieves us when God, our father, is dishonored. As a son is grieved when someone dishonors his father's name, are you grieved when God and God the father's name is dishonored? Third, to have a loving, to, have, uh, to love our heavenly father, showing we have a fear for our father. We have a love for our Father's holy day, the Lord's day. We love the children of God. We love His church, and we love Him above all else. And finally, a way that you can know that God is your Father is you desire to honor your Father. Do you have a desire to honor your Father by seeking to please Him, to seek to be like Him, to not grieve Him, to speak up for Him, These are ways that you can examine your own life. Uh, Children, you especially, you want to examine your own life to see if you have this desire to honor uh, your Father in heaven. That's how you know that God is your Father because children, young and old, uh, you cannot call God your Father because your parents call God your Father. You must be able to call God your Father on your own right And that's only through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So again, I want to ask you, is God your father? Have you been adopted into God's family through faith in Christ? If not, repent and come to Christ. And the Bible says he will in no way cast you out. He will not reject you. If you are a son or daughter, Seek to understand the love the Father has for you. When you go to Him in prayer, our Father. Seek to honor Him by praying to Him, by reflecting upon your Father's love, His mercy and kindness towards you, and by speaking up when others seek to defame His name. And when you pray, brothers and sisters, and you acknowledge God as your great and perfect Father. Remember the great mercy and grace He has granted you. 
as adopted sons and daughters. A prayer with the right frame of spirit, like Jesus gives here, honors your Father in heaven before you say anything else. Our Father, who is in heaven. May that truth permeate your heart. May that truth change the very way that you think about praying. May that truth change the very way that you think about your heavenly Father. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our great and awesome God, our merciful, our loving King of kings and Lord of lords, Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Oh, God, that your name would resound upon all of the earth. Father, that your name, we pray, would be glorified. From the rising of the sun to its setting, may the name of the Lord be praised. Oh, Lord, we do pray that your name would spread across all of the lands of this world, that the knowledge of God would be spread across all the lands. Now, Lord, we thank you and we give you all honor and praise that we have this great privilege to call you our Father. Oh, Lord, forgive us, Lord, for using your name so flippantly, so casually, uh, Lord, so presumptuously. What a great privilege it is to be your adopted son, to be your adopted daughter. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these truths more and more, God. They would affect our hearts. It would affect our life. would affect our prayer life, our walk. It would affect our conversations. It would affect our evangelism, our witness, our parenting. Uh, it would affect everything, Lord, to truly understand the fatherhood of God, how you have adopted us by your grace. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, guide us, lead us, Lord, as we enter this great prayer that you've given us, Lord. God, help us not to be just people who pray, but God, help us to be given to pray, to prayer. Help us to pray without ceasing. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me for being so weak in my prayer life. Forgive us all here, God, for being so inconsistent and so rushed in our prayer life. Forgive us all, God, for putting prayer on the bottom of our priority list. Lord, give us hearts that are convicted when we don't seek times of prayer. Help us to be like our Lord Jesus Christ who often slipped away to pray. Help us, Lord, to slip away to pray, to wake up extra early to pray, to pray during the night watch, Lord, to find breaks during the day to pray. Forgive me, Lord, how often we find breaks to do the things that we need to do, to find breaks to do frivolous things, entertaining things, God, but don't take breaks to pray. Help us all, Lord, during our time of day and whatever vocation and context of life you've given us. Help us, God, to slip away to pray. Help us, Lord, to begin and not hastily pray, to air out our complaints. 
O Lord, but to focus upon your glory. We thank you, Lord. We give you all honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's please stand together. Hymn number 438. Hymn is simply called Benediction. Let's sing together. May the peace.